0: Today we're bringing you a conversation from Fidelity Canada's Vision 2024 event in Toronto. Vision offers insights from our portfolio managers and investment experts and provides their comments on the current market environment, Fidelity's investment process, and our global research network operation. The following conversation is with our Global Asset Allocation team, composed of David Wolfe, David Talk, and Alain Colette. The team gives their outlook and market perspectives for 2024 this conversation was recorded on january 31st 2024.
1: so Alon, the first one is for you fidelity managed portfolios we actually just surpassed 10 years since we added active asset allocation it's one of canada's most popular products
2: sure i think that's a great place to start so again i'd welcome everyone in the room um this is a tremendous crowd um You know, my thoughts and prayers for the buffet line, but it's it's certainly a packed room. Um, But I think that's a great place to start, Kelly. Uh, I think really that's the outcome of our process, right? And our process has really two steps and there are two ingredients in that. The first uh, is we reach across Fidelity in Canada, the US, internationally, and choose a team of managers for asset asset classes, styles, geographies, etc. We assemble the best in-class managers that we have access to, many of whom you'll hear from today. Uh, that's the first step. The second step is using our four-pillar research-based process to lean in or out of asset classes, currencies, style, sectors to add additional return on top of our, our strategic allocations. Now, um, and that's that asset allocation part. And so combining those two, um, really is is the secret to success, I think here. Um, and again, you know, they may not win every single day or or week or month, but over a long period of time, combining those two things uh, has has proven to be a really effective a really effective strategy. Um, and I think the managed portfolios really bring out the best um, in terms of, of those capabilities.
1: Great, thanks. And I know we're going to hear about some of those levers that you just talked about. Uh, throughout the presentation. So the next question, David Wolf, um, the 60-40 portfolio took a lot of criticism in 2022. Uh, You know, The question was, is the balance fund dead? Uh, We really saw a comeback in 2023 of the balance fund. Um, So maybe talk a little bit about why it normalized and why we have so much conviction in balance funds.
3: Thank you. So uh, good morning, everyone. Let me add my welcome. and uh, channeling one of Dave's comments, uh, we are truly humbled by how many of you have decided to join us uh, both here in the room and uh, online. And, and we never take for granted the, the trust that you place in us uh, every day as managers of, of client assets. Um, so 6040, yes, I mean, I think one way to put it is uh, the death of 6040 was greatly exaggerated, so to speak. Uh, so in 2023, stocks went up, bonds went up, and so mixes of stocks and bonds went up frankly for me personally it's it's not a bad thing that the the yield on on gic's term deposits cash etc is not insulting the way it was for years i mean a zero interest rate environment is not uh not natural so to speak um but you know as we've said if you have any degree of risk tolerance any degree of time horizon uh you can do much better than that and i think we showed that in in 2023 um But one of the challenges to 60-40 hasn't gone away. So if you think about what happened in 2022, stocks went down, bonds went down, obviously a bad environment for balance funds, but the key is they both went down together. So this nice negative correlation, you know, when stocks go down, bonds cushion you, wasn't there. And that persisted in 2023. So you've still had a positive correlation, it's just stocks went up and bonds went up, which people don't mind as much, obviously but it's still that positive correlation. So you haven't got the negative correlation that has made 60-40 such an effective um, risk-adjusted strategy over time. Now we can go in later in the session with respect to why that correlation has shifted and what it means, but um, one thing I'll just say is that I don't think we're going back to days where you could rely on that negative stocks, bonds correlation in your portfolio. So what do you do? Well, you search more broadly for sources of diversification and risk mitigation. Uh, One that we've used for years that we think is is still quite important uh, is currency. So even as bonds have become less reliably related to stocks, uh, the US dollar has remained reliably negatively correlated to equity markets. So when equities go up, US dollar goes down. When they go down, US dollar goes up. So we've taken advantage of that in our portfolios by having significant currency weightings in the U.S. dollar. And that provides us the cushion that when you have drawdowns, as you did in 2022 in equity markets, bonds may not protect you, but the currency will protect you. And and that's been a a big story. Um, But there's more that we can do on the diversification side. And one particularly rich vein uh, for us is alternative investments. Um, So, many of you are aware that we've announced a partnership with Brookfield to bring direct real estate into the funds. Uh, To be clear, we understand that commercial real estate is a challenging sector at this point, and there's still adjustments to be made in terms of the marks on on a lot of those assets. So we're not in a hurry. We have fresh capital. We want to make sure we put it to work, Um, as I've said before, right asset, right price. Uh, But we think over time that's going to make a, a meaningful contribution to Uh, the performance, risk-adjusted performance in the funds. And then finally, uh, liquid alternatives, as Dave mentioned, uh, we've launched a lot of those in Canada. We already use some in the funds, the smart hedge that we came out with uh, a year or two ago, which is a nice options-based strategy to both participate in the upside and and protect on the downside. Um, But we think we've seen enough, and we're always very deliberate in our process when it comes time to introduce anything Mm -hmm. in the multi-asset funds. Um, We need to see the behavior, we need to understand the size and shape to interact with everything else. But uh, the liquid alternatives that we have seen in their behavior is very encouraging to us that they will have a place in the multi-asset class funds that we're responsible for. So I don't have an announcement this morning, unfortunately, like like Dave does, but uh, it's a, a watch this space.
1: I think it's very exciting. I know um, we've been talking as a team about what does the balance fund of the future look like? And I think it's this great evolution this year that we're looking at alternatives and how to add them into the portfolio. And like you said, very thoughtfully. So stay tuned for more definitely on that. So we talked about, it's been over 10 years since we added asset allocation, uh, active asset allocation in the portfolios. Um, and so uh, David Tulk, can you talk to us about your highest conviction ideas? So what are we overweight in the portfolios? and what are we underweight?
4: Yeah, no, absolutely. And because I don't want to be known as the rude member of the team, let me also extend my welcome and thanks <laughs> to everybody, both here in person as well as uh, online. Um, so yeah, so in terms of the high conviction views on the overweights and the underweights, uh, I think when we look at the macro backdrop and we think about where we are in the cycle, and we'll certainly have a chance to talk about the hard landing versus soft landing debate, those views right now don't necessarily lend themselves to a table pounding view either on equity beta, whether you want to be overweight or underweight, or necessarily on duration, whether you want to have a lot of bonds or whether you want to shy away. So generally speaking, we're fairly close to our uh, benchmark weights on those broad parameters. But where we have a lot more conviction in is a view on Canada. And I think everybody in the room has heard us talk about uh, this before. but. We continue to be underweight Canadian assets, so underweight Canadian stocks, bonds, and then by extension the currency. And whether we end up in a soft landing or hard landing, uh, Canada in that environment is unlikely to really perform well. And we can think of Canada certainly in a scenario where higher interest rates eventually bite. Canada is, as we all know, is a very highly levered economy, very vulnerable to higher interest rates and much more vulnerable Than other economies around the world so if you had to think of something where something goes wrong first canada as an economy would likely be very high on that list then similarly uh if we think of maybe more of the soft landing scenario and yes we will definitely talk about this in greater detail but even in that scenario i don't think canada necessarily outperforms other regions around the world so in that scenario again we want to be underweight canada and we want to generally have a broader allocation to Uh, regions around the world, so most prominently the US and by extension the US dollar, but also looking around at international markets, uh, including Europe and maybe on emerging markets to some extent as well. So that's really the high conviction view in terms of us wanting to be worried about Canada, continue to be worried about Canada in favor of looking externally as well. And then I'll just tack on something very briefly to what David Wolf mentioned in terms of the advantage of being underweight, uh, a cyclical currency like Canada is that it not only reflects the macro view that we have, but it also is a, a really strong way to enhance the risk mitigation characteristics of the funds that we manage.
1: So speaking about a soft versus a hard landing, um, David Wolf, you know, do you think we're set for a soft landing and then, especially in the US, and then how does it differ in Canada?
3: Sure, so I think, Sitting here right now, I can say we've already achieved something of a soft landing in the US. Uh, The economy has kept chugging along. It's actually accelerated somewhat. So we had 4% growth in the the second half of the year, which is actually quite strong. Uh, But inflation has come down. Uh, It's not all the way back down to target, but it's certainly in a more comfortable range for the Fed. And what that means is, as they've signaled in the past and probably will with the announcement again later on today, that they'll be able to ease off of the break. So uh, cut, reduce their monetary restriction, even if we don't go into recession just because you don't need it anymore because inflation is, is back under control. This is all a very welcome surprise, I would say. Uh, if When we sat here a year ago, um, and I think this was actually the same seat I was sitting in, uh, everybody, including ourselves, thought we'd be in recession in the US by now because you had this massive monetary tightening by the Fed for the first time in basically 30 years in a highly levered economy. Everybody expected you needed the recession to get inflation down, et cetera, and it didn't happen. So one of the key questions is why did that not happen? And the answer, and it's actually the only answer that makes sense from a macro point of view, is that we all underestimated the US economy's capacity So the only way you get inflation down and growth still to be strong is if the supply that we have in the economy is greater than we thought. So there's more slack you have room to grow into. Uh, And in the US, that's basically been a story of productivity. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at the data, productivity growth has really accelerated in the United States. It's not entirely clear why that is, AI is part of the story, uh, clean energy, technology investment. Uh, I personally think that one factor that's been underestimated is the change in working arrangements that we've had with you know, basically the pandemic killing a hundred-year-old paradigm of you show up to work at nine, you go home at five, et cetera. That greater flexibility has been helpful not only for our lives but for, for productivity. So it's very clear in the U.S. that you're getting this expansion in the supply side and it's giving capacity for the economy to grow while inflation is still coming down. I wish I could say the same in Canada, but it is a very different scenario. So if we step back some, there are only two ways that an economy can grow over time, more productivity or more people. And the US, as I mentioned, is doing the first, Canada is reliant on the second. So productivity growth in Canada, frankly, has been terrible and it's been actually negative over the past couple of years. What's been sustaining the economy is people, which is to say a a big spike in population uh, driven primarily by immigration. Now, everybody is aware of this phenomenon in the room and online. There are, are social and political dimensions to that. I'm certainly not gonna touch those, but the economic consequences are really quite clear, right? Which is to say that an economy can adjust very quickly to a whole bunch of people coming in. So you get pressures. You get pressure on housing, you get pressure on infrastructure, you get pressure on health care. And what does that do? Well, it's more demand than supply, so prices go up. Or in healthcare, where you don't have prices, you get shortages in lines and lines and that sort of thing. That is a, a daunting environment economically, because it means that growth is going to be weaker, but inflation stays high. And that's very daunting for the Bank of Canada as well. So what all of this means, and maybe to come full circle, is In the U.S., yes, I think we're going to see a soft landing. Arguably, we've already seen the soft landing. That's just going to be so much harder to execute in Canada.
1: And why is productivity growth so challenged in Canada?
3: So (laughs) economists have spent decades trying to figure (laughs) that out. Um, I have my own personal suspicions as to why. You know, one is... You know, a lack of competition in the economy. Uh, one is that you've had less in the way of capital investment than you have in the U.S. And, and elsewhere. But one important one linking to this immigration question is the long boom in housing that we've seen in Canada. So, if you think about if housing has been so strong, that's where people want to put money. So you have a certain amount of savings in Canada. And because of the housing boom, instead of channeling those savings into productive investment, capital, equipment, research and development, that sort of thing, we put it into housing. And housing is fundamentally an unproductive asset. And there's actually a very strong relationship. We, we published this in our, our uh, year kickoff thought leadership piece that I think many of you have seen. There's almost a perfect correlation between how much of investment has gone into housing in Canada and productivity growth, which is, when you have less housing, you have more productivity and vice versa. So there's a link between all of this that, again, if you're reliant more on people than productivity for growth, uh, you end up kind of devouring yourself, so to speak, and it's you know, not the situation we want, but unfortunately the situation we have.
1: Great. Uh, next, so top of mind for everyone in the room is inflation, and we happen to have an inflation expert here. So Alon, I know for years, um, We've been talking about what's going to happen. It, you know, Obviously, there wasn't a lot of activity for a while, but last year, you know, just talk to us a little bit about the inflation we've experienced and then where you think we're going in 2024.
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, um, i get excited about that question, so I can yeah. sit <laughs> up. Uh, um, you know, so inflation pushed to multi-decade year highs, right? We know this. Inflation in the US and Canada reached eight and 9%, um, but there has been a significant amount of progress in, this, in slowing the rate of inflation, right? So one to write down is the six-month annualized rate of core inflation in both U.S. and Canada is running in the mid-threes right now, and that is progress. And that progress has come from one of the factors that pushed up inflation so much during the pandemic were elevated goods prices. And what I mean by that is a lot of us were competing for fewer goods, right? So we were buying all the Pelotons and air fryers because we couldn't consume anything else, I bought both and used neither today. And, uh, <laughs> and, but that shock is largely out of the data. That shock, that shock is now gone. So goods prices are now inflating at rates that look like pre-COVID inflation rates. Again, they're not going for sale, they're just growing now at the rate that they were pre-COVID. But what we're left with is the other 75% or two thirds of the underlying inflation pie, which are service prices. Service prices are dictated by the price you pay the person doing the service, right? So in the, in the CPI report, you know, contracting or electrical services is the price of the person doing that. And they have become more expensive, right? People have become much more expensive and wage growth remains sort of uncomfortably high, I would say, for central banks. And that's propped up service inflation. And so, again, where we are now is there has been a meaningful amount of progress, but the path forward, could be a little bit sort of stubbornly sticky or challenging because um, getting service or wage inflation to slow on a consistent or meaningful, on a sustained basis uh, could, take, could take rates that are uh, restrictive for longer. Again, to what uh, David Wolf mentioned, not as restrictive as they've been necessarily, but still a restrictive uh, policy rate you know, in, order to, in order to bring that underlying uh, trend rate of inflation lower. So lots of progress. Just quickly linking it to, to positioning. I know we'll get to this later. Um, you know, we owned a lot of um, uh, inflation protection in our, in our funds. We still own that, just at slightly lower levels, but I'm, I'm sure we'll get into that positioning discussion
1: Great. a little bit later. So I said everyone is thinking about inflation in the room, but the second thing you're thinking about is interest rates. So today being a big day at the Fed. Uh, David Talk, uh, what do you think's gonna happen this year in terms of will there be cuts? When will they happen? What are your thoughts?
4: Yeah, this is a great topic and certainly covers a lot of what we've mentioned thus far as well. Uh, I think, I mean, if you listen to what central banks have told you, uh, if you they do think that at some point they're going to cut interest rates this year. So that's not a particularly controversial uh, thing to say. And I think a lot of the reason for that was something that I really puzzled about initially because I thought to myself, If the economy is still strong and if the U.S., as DW mentioned, can pull off this soft landing, I mean, why do they need to really cut interest rates? And then it dawned on me that elements of what Alon was talking about on inflation is perhaps a motivation. So this gets into the argument of nominal interest rates versus real interest rates. So as inflation is coming down, real interest rates are actually kind of going up a little bit and becoming even more restrictive. So that on its face is something that you could see that the central bank would might want to lean against. So that could be certainly a motivation for them to try to fine tune uh, policy to make sure that the economy isn't unduly restricted, despite the concerns on underlying inflation and inflation expectations becoming unhinged. So that's, again, not particularly controversial given what we get from Bank of Canada and Fed speakers and forecasts. I do think though that the market perhaps has run too far ahead of itself. Um, So we know the interest rate market can be very much driven by momentum, and as we started this year and late last year when it seemed as if things were in the clear, at least on the soft landing argument, uh, the market did rush to price in, I think at 1.6 interest rate cuts um, from the Fed. So I don't think that's necessarily going to uh, be realized, but I think that's the direction that we're moving in. Uh, When it comes to our, our, our positioning and how we're thinking about duration, I mentioned earlier Uh, that we have neutralized our duration position. So over much of the last two years, we remained underweight duration because we weren't convinced that central banks would necessarily um, cut over the horizon that I think the market had. Uh, But as we saw towards the end of last year where where interest rates reached their local peaks, we felt that the combination of sort of all-in yield and the balance of risk was starting to shift where we felt that the underweight to duration had run its course, so we neutralized it. But it's important to also note that we haven't really gone significantly overweight duration either. I think the reason for that, again, is that the market might have gone a little bit over, has run a little bit too far ahead of itself in pricing and cuts, but also the notion of, of what DW mentioned in terms of the correlation between stocks and bonds, I don't think is necessarily reliably negative from this point going forward. So you still would rather use currency as a way to provide defense because I don't think you can fully, fully trust bonds to a point where at this stage, you can take a sizable overweight to duration, at least in a multi-asset class framework.
1: So just touching on that point, um, because I've heard it from uh, both Davids today. So you know, we used to rely on a 60-40 portfolio um, because of the negative correlation. And you said that might not work going forward. Um, it's still a big case for asset allocation funds, but you know, why will it not work the same way it has in the past?
3: Right, so, the when we think about the macro, there are two kinds of shocks, and actually only two kinds of shocks that we face. Growth shocks where the economy is stronger or weaker, and inflation shocks where inflation is higher or lower. Right. So the growth shocks give you the negative correlation because if growth is stronger, that's good for stocks and bad for bonds. The inflation shocks give you the positive correlation, or sorry, the, the positive correlation, because higher inflation is bad for both and and vice versa. For 30 years, all we got was growth shocks because inflation was low and stable basically at 2%. So any surprises that we got were just economy stronger, economy weaker, which give you the negative correlation. Now we have inflation volatility and inflation went up in 2022 and that was bad for both. Inflation went down in 2023, that was good for both. But it gives you that positive correlation even if inflation is back under control, and as Alon alluded to, it remains to be seen, but even if it's under control, it's not going back to that 2% and forget it that we had for years and years and years. There's still going to be, at least in our judgment, some volatility in inflation. And that means you're going to have more periods where you get this positive correlation between stocks and bonds. So all to say that you know the, the 60-40 construct, the notion that you want a balanced portfolio for diversification, that remains true, that's not going away. But the simple, you have 60% index stocks and then 40% with a few bonds and just can forget it, that probably isn't coming back as a, as a viable strategy.
1: And David, tell, back to interest rates for a second. Do you see a difference in the approach of Bank of Canada versus the Fed? Do you see a world in which Canada goes first before the Fed?
4: Yeah, I think that's a, a very interesting question. And it's a challenge, I think, um, certainly for the Bank of Canada. Again, when you think about the underlying productivity arguments in the comparison to the United States, you know Canada doesn't have that productivity tailwind. Uh, so as a result, it's maybe harder for them to withstand the persistence of inflation. Um, but on the other hand, the Bank of Canada recognizes that they're a very rate sensitive economy. And as especially the five-year fixed portion of the mortgage market renews over the next couple of years, that could certainly pose a very decisive uh, downside risk to the economy. So it's a very challenging thing for, I think, uh, the, the Bank of Canada to manage. And whereas for the Fed, perhaps this maybe a little bit easier, given that they have that productivity tailwind to manage. So I don't think the bank knows necessarily if they're going to cut before or after the Fed. It's a bit of a, a moot point, I think, in terms of how central banks would, would view things. But uh, it's, it's a very, it's a very hard question, I think, to answer definitively. Um, but I think certainly by the end of the year, you will have seen both central banks cut rates. But uh, as to who exactly goes first, I think it'll have to really come down to the economic
3: data, and that's again something that central banks are very mindful of as well. So I would just. Add on to that, maybe as a way of summarizing, the Fed is going to cut because it can. The bank is going to cut because it has to.
1: Great, thank you. Um, housing always comes up. Certainly, it's top of mind as well. And um, you know, we've been criticized in Canada for having a housing shortage. Do you think it's too big of a housing shortage, or do you think there's other elements to the conversation um, about the type of housing and the affordability of housing?
3: Um, so I'm happy to take that one. Uh, the, so there is a housing shortage in Canada and that's, that's very clear. And that's been intensified by the rapid population growth, as I, I mentioned before. But there are sort of sky is falling narratives out there in terms of the degree of housing shortage. Which I, I think need to be addressed. So there was a wonderful uh, CMHC study that came out uh, a couple of years ago, was updated quite recently, saying that Canada needed to build three and a half million more houses through 2030 to address the supply shortage. And this was a repeated in a number of headlines. And, and it was a great study, but apparently not very many people actually read the study <laughs> because. They didn't say we need three and a half more million houses for people. We actually have plenty of houses for people. What we need three and a half million more houses for is to restore affordability in the housing market. And what that means is basically they were modeling, okay, to restore the affordability of 20 years ago, how much more supply do you need? Restoring the affordability of 20 years ago means house prices down 50%. So that 3.5 million is house prices down 50% in her model. Um, Now that may be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on one's point of view, but it's a very different thing than the common narrative. So what we have is is not a supply issue so much in terms of the number of houses and number of people. We have a supply issue with respect to just the affordability of housing that needs to be addressed over time. One thing I will guarantee is if we actually do build three and a half million houses through 2030, that is gonna put downward pressure on housing. There's no question.
1: So we've talked a lot uh, about the outlook for 2024. How does this play into how the portfolios are positioned right now? So how are you positioned and how could you see that changing based on what we've talked about? Question for anyone.
3: Um, I'll take that one too. So a couple of points, maybe pulling together a lot of the threads that, that we've talked about up here. So maybe first and DT, sorry, we refer to each other as DT and DW because we have too many Davids in this group. <laughs> um, and DT talked about bonds. And maybe one thing to reinforce is in these multi-asset class funds, we are quite tactical with our asset allocation. So the classic asset allocation playbook when the Fed is tightening and we think a recession is coming is to buy bonds. We didn't do that last year. And the reason we didn't do that is yields at 2%, 3%, et cetera, still didn't incorporate the degree of tightening that we were seeing, the normalization in interest rates and in an environment where unlike over the past 30 years inflation was 6 7% and not 2 3%. So we actually went further underweight interest rate sensitivity and duration. We didn't chase bonds. Uh, only buying them back, as DT mentioned, when we got to 5% in US 10, we were like, okay, that's enough. We're gonna fill in that underweight. And as DT mentioned, we're now pretty neutral with respect to duration. The second point, we're pretty neutral, again, as was mentioned in terms of our equity weighting. So the way to think about this is we're fully invested. You know, You're never gonna get the all clear in markets, but I think the period where we were so acutely concerned about and sensitive to this big tightening, this inflation problem, et cetera. I think that's largely behind us, at least in the US. Third point, again, as DT mentioned, we're underweight Canada. We think there are better opportunities in the rest of the world. We're, we're pursuing those in, in various ways. Fourth, we are still overweight inflation protection, as Alon mentioned. Um, inflation has made progress, but, If it's sticky and the market is not discounting it to be sticky, we think it's still worth having that uh, protection in the portfolios. And then fifth, within fixed income, we are significantly underweight government bonds, investment grade bonds, and significantly overweight a lot of extended asset classes. So that would be high yield, floating rate notes, commercial mortgage backed securities, uh, et cetera. And I know Jeff and Stacy are speaking later this morning. I don't want to f- steal their thunder on, on fixed income, but just to say that we're getting yields uh, with reasonable risk characteristics in the eight, nine, 10% range that we haven't seen in 20 years in those markets. And for funds like ours that have a wide variety of asset classes to choose from, that income is, is pretty attractive.
1: Great. So uh, we're almost at time. I just wanted to ask you uh, anything you want to leave us with today. So Olan, I'll start with you.
2: Uh, yeah, so I would say, I mean, um, research is our edge, right? So we talked about a huge swath of topics this morning, um, and none of that would be uh, possible without the researchers that support us, some of hu- some of whom are viewing, are watching us today from, uh, from Boston and Toronto. So everything that we do from the construction of a fund to the way that we assemble the team of managers to what we lean in or out of is based on research. So research underpins everything. And we're going to show a QR code in a little bit that has a link to our uh, Q1 Thought Leadership paper. I encourage everyone to read it. Um, there'll be a quiz at the end of the day, <laughs> right.
1: Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us today. It's very exciting, great way to kick off the day. And thank you. And next up, um, we have Ramona, so thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates.